If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 4, and uh, we're going to have Chelsea read the scripture for us today. Hi, I'm Chelsea. I'm new here, for those of you I haven't met. <laughs> All right. John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in a, them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. 
Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Thank you, Chelsea. I mean, do we need to preach? That's so good. Like, the story itself is so good. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and and spend some time talking about this passage. Um, You know, after the last month of being together at the park and praying together, it's really nice to be back into some level of normal rhythm, even though it still feels like we are kind of perpetually in this strange, you know, kind of like week by week, we're pivoting, we're shifting, we're trying to understand what the season that we're in as a country and as a church and stuff. And I'm just so glad to be back with all of you today here in this room, um, uh, opening up God's words. So good to be back inside. Um, A couple of months ago when we were preaching through a series called Deeply Formed, I I, uh, hinted that in the fall we were going to, we were planning on talking about sort of what we call kingdom theology, which is the theological framework of our entire church and really the vineyard movement that we are a part of. And I was really looking forward to it. I was studying for it, uh, lining my my series out really well. But as we were praying uh, throughout the month of August, Um, As a pastor's team, we started to have a sense that maybe God was actually inviting us to spend some time just focusing on some really basic ideas um, uh, about what it means to be a Christian and how if we actually lay hold of these really basic ideas, it changes everything. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus was frequently confronted by religious leaders of his time with one simple question. They would say, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? in all of the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures. How would you summarize what it means to be faithful to God? What is the most important thing for us to do? And here's how Jesus would summarize what it means to follow God. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So how do we summarize what it means to follow Jesus? Jesus gives us two things. He says, love God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as 
yourself. Now, in the vineyard, one of the things that we prioritize is worship. We love to sing, and we prioritize intercessory prayer, and we gather um, five days a week plus pre-service prayer times just to intercede and to cry out to God because we have this high value for being in God's presence and loving him with everything that we've got. But you see, I feel like over the last 18, 20 months, whatever it's been, things that have been revealed is that the problem is that the second command that Jesus gives us is not always as easy to practice as we would imagine. You see, when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, this is something that makes us as human beings, like something on the inside of us says, yes, that is what I want. That's the kind of world that I want to live in. What a beautiful and inspiring sentiment. But then when it actually comes time to do the thing, we realize that it's way more challenging than we think. And the point of pain comes when we move from the general to the particular, from the abstract to the concrete. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh my goodness, wouldn't it be great if we all just loved each other? But like, who is my neighbor? Like, and really, what does this love that you're saying, like, what kind of sacrifice will it require of me? And what if I love them for a while, but they don't deserve it? And what if my neighbor doesn't look like me, or believe what I believe, or vote how I vote? And what if my neighbor eats food that kind of doesn't sound that appetizing to me? Or what if my neighbor just, like, won't mow their lawn, and they're making the whole neighborhood look bad? Or what if they listen to loud music late at night and it disrupts my night's sleep? Or what if my neighbor refuses to wear a mask in the middle of a pandemic? Or what if my neighbor is wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt? And what if they're not even grateful for the things that I want to do to love them? What if they don't even receive that as love? And so you see the abstract command becomes, starts to feel less beautiful as it collides with the particulars of the people that God surrounds us with. Like how many married people can even testify that a marital relationship sounds beautiful at first and weddings are awesome, but it's immediately tested when you're confronted with the particulars of the person that you marry. Like on your wedding day, you make all of these grand promises. You are so beautiful. You are so handsome. I will love you with every sickness and health. Of course, no matter what, I'm all in. But why do you load the dishwasher like that? You know, like, you, and, you, and you, you're just confronted with like the frustration, the petty frustrations. And I don't want to make light of the fact that like, I know that our difficulties and issues in marriages and in relationships with others are way bigger than just these petty little frustrations, but it just goes to show how fickle our heart can be. And this is where the work of choosing obedience comes in. This is why we have been commanded to do it, not just asked to, do, to follow our feelings. This is where we have a volitional choice to love the way that Jesus does or to follow the patterns of our world who are willing to love up to a point. And the church, I believe, the followers of Jesus are called to demonstrate a sacrificial love to all kinds of people. 
We want to move beyond just sort of the general, the, we want to move beyond just sort of uh, virtue signaling on social media, putting up a black box on our Instagram to show that we're an ally to a certain group of people. We want to move away from the general and into actually loving the very particularly difficult people that are all around us, from general to particular, from abstract to concrete. So this, my friends, I have good news. This is what we're going to do all fall. This is what we're going to be talking about all during the autumn season, is what does it mean for Christians to love their neighbors as ourselves? And we're going to do this by examining the life of Jesus. We're going to just look in the Gospels and see, how does Jesus love different kinds of people? Which brings us to John chapter 4. How many of you guys are excited about this series? Anybody? Because, I man, I just love Jesus. So here we are in John chapter 4. Chelsea just read it for us, and it is beautiful. The, the story of the woman at the well is honestly one of the most beautiful stories in all of the New Testament, in my opinion. And countless sermons have been preached on this text. There are so many facets of the gospel that are on display here, and it honestly like behooves me to figure out how to adequately preach it in like 25 minutes. But that's my job. So I'm going to do it. Jesus, we see, has, he's been ministering to different kinds of people in the book of John. The book of John actually starts out by declaring that Jesus was God that was made flesh and that he had come to dwell among humanity to point us beyond himself all the way up to the Father. And so Jesus, from story to story, is actually kind of like going to different kinds of people to demonstrate what this new life that he's come to offer looks like. And what we see at the beginning of John chapter 4 is that Jesus, for some reason, is compelled to go through Samaria on his way from, or to Galilee from Judea. Verse 4 says, he had to go through Samaria. Or as the King James Version says, he must needs go through Samaria, which is just amazing, such a good way of saying it. But you see, here's the problem. If you know anything about the culture of his day, no good Jewish rabbi would have intentionally planned to go to Samaria. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. You see, a few hundred years before the time of Jesus, when the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they carried away the, the Israelites into captivity, into exile for 70 plus years, that there was a remnant of Israelites who, stayed, who, who were like kept behind in the land of Israel. And these Israelites, they intermarried with the peoples all around them, the Canaanites, the, specifically the Canaanites whom God had told them never to intermarry with. And so this mixed people, they, decided, they started calling themselves a new tribe of Israel, and the Jews despised them as half-breeds. And they practiced a form of the same kind of religion, but with some different teachings that were a little bit twisted, a little bit different. And so rabbis, when they were traveling in the area, they would add extra days to their journey to avoid going through Samaria at any cost. But not Jesus. Jesus must needs go to Samaria. He was compelled to go to some town called Sychar, and he's walking along, and he arrives at a well just on the outside of this town, 
around noon, and it says that he was very tired. Now, this is a little bit of a side note. One of the things that I've been noticing, I spend every morning a little bit of time in the Gospels, always reading about Jesus every single day. And one of the interesting themes that God has been highlighting to me over the past couple of months is just how frequently Jesus ministers while he is exhausted. Like, Jesus is a man who had a deep inner life with God. He had great rhythms of Sabbath and rest. But over and over again, we actually see Jesus is ministering, and it says he was really tired. And then a whole group of people showed up to him. And that speaks to me as a person who is getting up multiple times a night right now with a little baby. If you are in that season where you are exhausted, I want to let you know Jesus was tired too. And God still used him in amazing ways. He can still use you when you're tired. Now, Jesus is all alone in the middle of the day at this well, and we read that a woman from Samaria walks up to the well alone, carrying her jars. And Jesus, when he sees her, he doesn't have anything with him. He doesn't have anything to get water for himself with. So he asks her, will you give me a drink? And here's how she responds. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And see this right here in verse 9, this is the central question of this entire exchange. Her response captures everything that we need to know, everything that we are wrestling with right now. She says, I am a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. We cannot have this conversation. I am a Samaritan one degree of separation, woman, two degrees of separation. How can I give you a drink? Because you know and I know that your scriptures teach that if I give you a drink, you'll actually be defiled by it. You would be considered unclean just from interacting with me and drinking this water. How, how dare you put me in this weird posi position, this situation? I'm a Samaritan. And you see, what, what we see here in this moment is that Jesus is not just a thirsty traveler sitting by the well, and she is not just a helpful local. No, their interaction was being defined by social categories that transcended them. And so the question that's being addressed here is, how can I love my neighbor when in this moment my neighbor is actually my cultural enemy? And what Jesus is doing here is he's breaking all kinds of barriers in this interaction. He's breaking a racial barrier. He's breaking a gender barrier, a religious barrier, a cultural barrier, and even a morality barrier by talking with this woman. And Jesus, after being confronted with this harsh question, he isn't even rattled. And he says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Wow. Now, there's a double meaning here to this word living water. I know that sort of if you've been around church for very long, it just feels like kind of this spiritual metaphor. But in the first century, living water was actually a very real and literal thing. It was, um, it was a, a way of describing fresh, rushing, cool, clean, refreshing water, like from a spring. It was water from a spring, and it was often water that would be really hard to get to because it was usually in very far out-of-the-way places, or it would require digging an extremely deep well to find where the water is not just pooling, but where it's actually moving. 
So this woman looks at Jesus and hears this invitation, and she looks at him with some level of suspicion. She's like, how can you promise me fresh living water? You don't even have a cup or a jar to draw from. Like, you, you say that you have some well with living water in it. How in the world? You can't even get water for yourself right here. And by the way, this well that we're sitting at, this was dug by Jacob. This was dug by our patriarch. This was dug by somebody that we revere. Both you and us revere him as a father of our peoples. Are you saying you're better than Jacob? Are you saying you have a better well than him? And, and so she's, she's not like immediately like, oh, living water, that sounds great. She's like, I don't know who you are or what you're talking about. But at the same time, desire is beginning to be awakened in her. You know, if there really is this other water, could it be? And could I go to this other well and not have to go to this well? Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus now crosses into what he's really getting at. I'm not just offering you a fresher source of water. I'm offering you something altogether different, eternal life. Jesus points to the well and the water that she's about to draw, and he's trying to take her to a place of deeper desire and show that what she is really after and what she is unprepared to, to, to admit that she wants is something so much more. She is after something that will satisfy so she doesn't have to thirst and keep coming back to the same places over and over again. And you see, the book of John is a brilliant, brilliant account of, of the story of Jesus. He is a phenomenal storyteller. And this story right here in chapter 4 comes right on the heels of a story that happens in John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking with a different person, a man named Nicodemus. And these two people, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, could not be more different from each other. And yet the conversation seems to have the same arc. You see, Nicodemus is a religious insider. He's a Pharisee. He is part of the priesthood. Nicodemus was a man in a patriarchal society. He was well-known and respected in his community. He was someone who was seen um, by God himself and by the rest of the community as an intermediary between the people of Israel and God. And yet Nicodemus, when he has questions and he wants to understand what Jesus is all about, he steals away and goes and finds Jesus in the dead of night where no one will see him there. Almost like he's hiding the fact that he wants to talk with Jesus. And, and, and Jesus, in conversation with Nicodemus, he locates Nicodemus' great desire and sees that there is something there that needs to be poked at. You see, Nicodemus, the insider, the Pharisee, the, the, the part of the priesthood, he knew that for all of his religious faithfulness, the way that he follows rules, the way that he has done everything right, he is a holy man of Israel, but something is still wrong in him. And Jesus said, here's the solution. If you want to be whole, you have to be born again. And if you are born again, Nicodemus, you know what you experience and what you receive? Eternal life. 
And then you jump to chapter 4. And on the other hand, there is this Samaritan woman of bad reputation, an outcast, even within her own community, not even named in the Bible. And she comes and sees Jesus, but she comes and sees him in the light of day. And the funny thing is, her meeting Jesus at the well at noon, it may as well have been midnight because no one was there or around. She was all alone. And this woman is tired. She's not just tired. She's like soul tired. We find out later that she's been married five times, which means that she has been through five men, or probably better put, five men have been through her. And we don't know why her previous marriage has failed. We don't know if she's a widow and men just keep dying after they marry her. She has a reputation, the black widow. All we know is that, is that, uh, is that she is not considered an object of pity in her community. She's seen as an object of scorn and shame. And she's coming to the well in the heat of the day to avoid seeing the other women in her community. And when she hears about this living water, the water that satisfies Something on the inside of her comes alive. A desire is awakened. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Sir, you have a solution so I don't have to keep coming back here day after day and face sort of the shame of my community? I want that. I have been searching for something that will satisfy the longing in my heart. And instead, I consistently find disappointment and pain and shame. And so we read that Jesus, he arrives at the well at noon, and we see that he's tired. But we see that this woman is weary. She is soul tired. She has been through it. And she needs life. You see, what Jesus is talking about is something better than anything that she could even hope for. This living water is the fresh running supply that God offers to bring us into life. And it's available to her in this moment in the person of Jesus. I mean, what an incredible invitation. And look at what Jesus does next because he's not done with her. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus, knowing everything about her already, he starts to push on an area of tenderness. He says, go get your husband. And she replies, I have no husband. Now, scholars actually debate sort of what is the nature of this exchange. And some would contend that when she says, I have no husband, she's actually kind of making it as a suggestion of availability. Like, hey, do you have a husband? Oh, no, I don't have a husband. Well, I don't really think that that's necessarily what's happening here, but I think that that, that interpretation, it lends itself to something that, that is very real, that so many of us become so beat down by the way that we have been treated by other people that we no longer know how, know how to relate to others except according to our brokenness, that she's looked and only been able to find any kind of worth through the attention of men. And so she tells Jesus, I'm not tied down. So maybe that's it, the interpretation. But I think much more likely is this woman was just tired and didn't want to go there, didn't want to talk about it. It's a point of shame and pain. Let's just brush Jesus off and don't go there. And in, any, and in either case, what Jesus does next is shocking. 
Like, I cringe at the very thought of what it would feel like to be there. Like, could you imagine this? In verse 17, it says, Jesus said to her, you're right that you, when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. I mean, just like sucks the air out of the room. Because I, mean, I would have fainted, you know? This woman is already vulnerable, and Jesus like just goes straight to the point of deepest pain and regret and shame. But what we see in, in the way that this is written in the original language is Jesus is not confronting her. He's not shaming her at all. Jesus is so tender, even when he calls out something that she would never want to have exposed. And this is why it's so important for us to just learn how to be honest with Jesus. Like, have you ever talked with Jesus in prayer and knowing that it's just you and him and no one else is listening, you still find it really hard to admit what's really going on in your heart or the things that have sort of plagued you? Like, even when it's just you and him, you can't quite say things as they are. Even knowing that Jesus already knows everything about you and loves you in the midst of it, we still want to hide our sin and our brokenness. This is me, okay? Like, I'm not saying you guys. This is me. When I come to Jesus in repentance, how much do I have to fight the urge to just sort of pray a general prayer of repentance? Jesus, repent. Forgive me of my sin. You know I've got a lot of it. And he's like, yeah. Like, I, yeah, so let's talk about it. Let's work on it. Let's address it. Let's confront it. Let's repent of it so that we can bring it all the way through to a place of healing. I hate my sin. I want to bury it. But see, Jesus doesn't come to shame us or dredge things up from our past in order to hurt us. He comes to bring healing. But the way through to healing is to go through the point of pain and shame. You see, this woman is thirsty. She's weary. We, we now see why she is alone at the well in the heat of the day. It's because all her life, she has looked for life and rest in the wrong places, and they've left her dry and empty and alone. And you see, here's where we hit the plot twist in this sermon. Because we started out the sermon saying we were going to examine John chapter 4 to see how Jesus loves this, this person, a, a neighbor as himself, and how we can learn to love people who are broken and messed up like this woman, just like Jesus does. But we, when we come through the text, what we realize is that we are not actually Jesus. We are this woman. And that we are messed up just like she is. You see, because all of us have been guilty of the same things looking into countless things to satisfy that deep inner ache in our soul. And so maybe like this woman, you have been searching to fulfill that ache at the foot of someone's bed. Or maybe you've given your life to the endless pursuit of some version of success. Or maybe you've looked for some kind of relief from the pain at the bottom of a bottle, or some kind of experience, or some kind of status. And Jesus would say the same thing to every one of us that he said to this woman. He said, everyone who drinks those waters will keep on thirsting. It will not satisfy you. What do you really want? What are you really after? What is at the, at the bottom of that desire? Like, what is really underneath all of it? Because, and then Jesus comes with a promise to fulfill it. 
You see, Jesus isn't offering us a consolation prize for following him. He's not saying that if you leave all of these lesser things behind, he'll give you a little trinket. No, you see, what Jesus promises us is nothing short of full satisfaction and joy. He's offering us something that won't just tie us over until our next meal. He's offering us something so that we no longer have to hunger and thirst like like we found ourselves hungering and thirsting. He's offering us what he calls eternal life. And the Bible, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not referencing some kind of celestial dwelling that you get to go to when you eventually die. In fact, in the book of John, Jesus defines eternal life as a whole new kind of life that begins right here and right now. It's life in relationship with your creator the one who is the source of every good and perfect gift, the one who has created you and desired for you wholeness. God is the one who wants to satisfy you. That is what eternal life is all about. And Jesus looks at us and says, if you knew who was standing in front of you, who is inviting you, and what I'm inviting you to enjoy, you would ask me and I would give you living water. See, Jesus had to go through the point of pain in this woman so that he could bring her the healing that her soul desperately longs for. And before she can receive living water, Jesus had to show her all of the ways that she had been trying to find satisfaction and all the ways that she had been seeking to quench her own thirst. And when Jesus shines this light on her soul, she could have run. She could have dropped her jars and run away in shame and just figured that everyone, it's just like everyone else before. Or she could have resisted and fought back and told Jesus what she thought of him. She could have felt just wounded by yet another man. But she didn't do any of those things. And you see, when, when we're honest with ourselves, there is so much sin and pain and brokenness right here in this room. Like all of us are carrying it. And imagine if Jesus brought you to the front and put you right here on stage and he shined his spotlight of truth onto your heart, revealing everything that's in there. Imagine that he did it to me. I would literally run for the hills. (laughs) I would bounce. I'd be out of here. There is nothing that sounds worse to me and more terrifying to me than that. How would you respond the moment that Jesus shines a light on the truth of what's in your heart? But look at how she responds. And honestly, it's kind of hilarious. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) Okay, good insight. She's like, I'm pretty quick. You got like a prophet thing going on, don't you? She continues, our ancestors, worship, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So Jesus just shines a spotlight. He says, you've been married five times. The man you're living with right now isn't even your husband. And she's like, so you're a prophet. I've got a question for you. Where should we worship? <laughs> she, she diverts from the issues in her own life. She deflects the situation um, and, and she, she wants to bring it to some kind of like abstract uh, 
disconnected from her own heart theological conversation. She, she just wants to change the subject. And we do the same thing in our world today, all the time. At moments of deep spiritual vulnerability, we crave some kind of pressure release. Like, man, Marshall has been talking like this for a while now. Can we please just hear a joke or like a reference to some other cultural issue that isn't my issue? I hope that he just talks about those people for just a minute to let me off the hook. Have you ever had one of those conversations with someone where maybe you're starting to get a place of like real vulnerability with them and suddenly they just bring up something like, what about the Crusades? Or, or no, yeah, but like what about sexual misconduct in the church? Or maybe they just want to bring up some like perceived political hypocrisy among evangelicals. Like I remember... Um, when I lived downtown about a year and a half ago, I was having a, a, a campfire with my neighbor who was across the street, and we were, we were talking about real stuff in life. We were talking about marriage. We were talking about kind of our hopes for eventually um, uh, what we want our kids' to like lives to be like, and I was, I, was, I was sharing Jesus with him. I kept talking about Jesus with him and um, trying to bring him to a place of like, what is it that you really deeply desire? And right as things started to get like very vulnerable, he said, but I heard there's like two different creation myths in the book of Genesis. What do you make of that? <laughs> what? What? What are you talking about? And it was just, it was the same thing. It was deflect, change the subject, debate world religions and dodge the real stuff going on in our heart. But what we see is that Jesus is actually willing to go there. He doesn't just brush aside her question. He answers her question, but he reveals the deeper truth underneath the surface. She says, which mountain should we worship on? And he said, I'm really glad that you're interested in worship. Um, that mountain, not a big deal. This mountain, not a big deal. Spirit and truth. What's in your heart? That's what God really wants to be about. You see, and so on one hand, he dignifies her question with a real response while also revealing that her question really doesn't matter very much. This mountain or that mountain? Uh, neither. But do you want living water? That's what's available right now. But how do we know that the Bible is trustworthy? Like, how do you know that what you believe is actually true? Well, I have reasons, but come and taste and see that the Lord is really good. Yeah, but what about the Crusades? Yeah, those were really problematic, and we do not like that. But there's life for you. Jesus is here. Yeah, but what about pastors who abuse women? Yeah, but are you thirsty? Come and receive the gift of God. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And so at the end of this exchange, the Samaritan woman, one who is known in her community to have a terrible reputation, one who is not even named in the Bible, she becomes the first person in all of human history to receive revelations directly from Jesus. This is who I am. I'm the Messiah. I mean, just think about who Jesus decides to dignify and raise up and honor with this amazing news. He didn't say it to Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus had all the power in the world to be able to promote Jesus, platform him. Hey, everybody, I've got an announcement. Jesus is the Messiah. No, he goes to an out-of-the-way village in Sychar, in Samaria, to find the least reputable person in the least reputable place, and, he's, and she is the person who hears first, the Messiah is here. Isn't that extraordinary? This is how Jesus loves his neighbor. This is the neighbor that Jesus calls us to love. And not only does Jesus love her as a neighbor by urgently traveling to her town and waiting in the hot sun and engaging her in conversation, not only does he honor her as his neighbor by sharing the good news about living water, Jesus honors her and loves her as his neighbor by sharing himself with her, by sharing who he is with her. And this moment unlocks everything. She drops her water jar. She leaves it behind at the well. And she takes off and goes back into her town to be among all of the people that she had been intentionally avoiding to bring to them the same good news that Jesus just shared with her. And in this moment, we see the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to her earlier in the conversation because she didn't just have a sip and a drink of this living water to satisfy her. She now became a spring of water for her entire village. She now became the source of this good news that would satisfy and unlock every heart in her town. Her shame was broken off by the love of Jesus and just as Jesus was compelled to go to this uncomfortable place among people he didn't want to see, now this woman is compelled to go to her people and share the same good news. This woman who was overlooked by everyone and ha who had no business meeting Jesus experienced his love and it changed everything. Now, in the meantime, while she runs back to her village, we see that the disciples come back from town with some lunch. But you see, Jesus isn't hungry. And he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And boy, am I full. Boy, that was a scrumptious meal you guys just met, missed. And then Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields they are ripe for harvest. Open your eyes, guys, and look around. The harvest is here. Open your eyes and see the people all around you that God has sent us to love and to offer living water to. And where were they when Jesus said, look at the harvest? They were in Samaria. They had just been in Judea, but Jesus makes this statement right here in Samaria, in a place that no good Jew would ever have traveled to. The harvest is here. It's among the enemy. It's among the outcast. It's among the overlooked. It's among the people that we have already written off. And so church, what if we struggle to see the harvest that's before us because the harvest is actually among those who are overlooked? What if the people God is calling us to proclaim good news to are the very people that we would rather avoid? Could it be, my friends, that we struggle to see the fruit of lives being transformed by this good news that has utterly transformed our lives because we are overlooking the very people that Jesus has sent us to go and share this good news with? 
What if the neighbor that we are to love as we love ourselves is among the very people that we are most uncomfortable around? And after Jesus had this conversation with this woman, those in the town who heard the news, her story, even though she was the least reputable person in town, they, they ran out to meet him and they compelled him. I love how much this word is used. They compelled him to stay. So he remained a couple more days. And the disciples in Jesus, the only Jews in all of Israel who were in Samaria, they had a revival in the presence of their enemies who were transformed into brothers and sisters by the power of the gospel. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. We heard your story, but now we've tasted the water. We saw how you were transformed, but look at what our lives are like now. And so, my friends, before we can offer living water to others, we need to first drink deeply of it ourselves. You see, all of us are this woman at the well, being offered fresh mercy and fresh grace morning by morning. And we are invited to receive and experience true life and satisfaction from God so that we might not thirst after the lesser things that have always left us dry. My friends, have you tasted this water? Are you thirsty? Jesus is offering us living water. And when we receive, and when we receive this, we are promised to not only be filled from the cup that we drink from, but that springs of living water would, be, would begin to flow out from us, pouring forth from our lives for the refreshing of all of those that God has surrounded us with. It's for our neighbors. It's for those who are easy to love and those who are hard to love. You see, Love your neighbor as yourself while it is a command. The promise that we see here from Jesus is that it is not our effort to be able to love people adequately. It's overflow. It's receiving the love of God and letting it flow out to others. Even when we are tired and weary and feeling disqualified from our past, the fountain doesn't come from us. It's from him. We can only love our neighbor as we have received love from God. And if you have only felt like you can receive love from God on the basis of condition, don't be surprised when you can only love others on the basis of condition. But if you realize that God has loved you regardless of who you are, what you've done, what you've been through, what has been done to you, that is what unlocks you to be a source of that same love into people who are broken just like us. So the question is, do you feel like you're overflowing this life of God onto your neighbors or your family members or your roommates or your brothers and sisters who are here in the church with you. I have good news for you. If you feel dry, you can come and drink freely. It's available for you today. Amen? Okay. Now what's cool about John chapter, uh, John chapter 4 is that it's right in the middle of this pattern that we see from Jesus in the book of John. In John chapter 3, Jesus uses strange language while he's talking to a man named Nicodemus, saying, you want eternal life? You have to be born again. And then in the next chapter, 
Jesus uh, talks to this woman and he says, I have something for you. It's called living water. You have to drink it. And then a couple of chapters later, Jesus gets real freaky with it. And he tells a crowd to start eating his flesh and drinking his blood. All really difficult and strange images that are all pointing to the same central invitation, eternal life. And this is one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, but it is so central to what we believe as Christians. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, what we, what we see in this passage and in all of these chapters is that God sent his son to take on humanity and to draw people into life with God. He didn't come to condemn the world. You see, Jesus wasn't compelled to go to Samaria, to this town of Sychar, so that he could heap more moral burdens on an already weary woman. He came to lift every burden that she was carrying and to offer her the life that is true life. And so this morning, we're about to take communion together, which is a family meal that is pointing us to our shared hope in Jesus. And you see, the blood that was shed on the cross, that Jesus, when he was on the cross, when he died, that this blood, it washes us clean of all of our sin. Everything in our past that we have committed and even what has been committed against us. And, it, and as people who have been born again, or who have tasted this living water, or who have participated in the flesh and blood of Jesus, we now live a whole new kind of life, the life of the age to come. And this, my friends, is why we invite everyone to participate when we take communion together. Because this is what we see Jesus doing in John chapter 4. Come and taste and see the life that I have for you.